for their invitation uh, to me. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here, and I'm also very grateful to Linda Friedman uh, for joining uh, in this uh, panel tonight. Uh, two papers that I think uh, uh, fit together extremely well, so I look forward to the conversation after. Um, so, in May 1887, two young men in the northern industrial town of Bolton sat down together to write a letter to Walt Whitman about to celebrate his 68th birthday. Dear Walt, they began boldly, then appalled at their own temerity, hastened to explain, in no less familiar or colder terms can we bring ourselves to address you, the most loved of friends, though such a salutation to anyone but yourself would seem an impertinence. The two Boltonians went on to introduce themselves. You do say Boltonians, don't you? I think I have that right. Um, uh, went on to introduce themselves in similarly awkward, earnest terms. Uh, John Johnston, who uh, took that uh, famous photograph, was a physician who had been delivered from, quote, soul-benumbing skepticism by Whitman's verse. J.W. Wallace was an architect's assistant who regarded leaves of grass as, quote, a gospel bringing tidings of great joy. Um, to the delight, Whitman responded in an amiable letter to each of them. They ensured a response by enclosing 10 pounds. Um, and, um, and probably within a few years, the Eagle Street College, which was Johnston's playful name for a small group of friends who met weekly at Wallace's house, uh, became the center of Whitmanite activity in Great Britain. During the last four years of his life, Whitman sent over 100 letters and postcards to Bolton. Johnston and Wallace both made pilgrimages to Camden, New Jersey, and the two men were in frequent contact with a wide range of eminent British cultural and political figures, including Edward Carpenter, John Anakin Simmons, J. Keir Hardy, and Ramsay MacDonald. Uh, the Bolton Whitmanites are important to any appraisal of the British reception of Lisa Grass. And this evening, I want to argue that they also have much to tell us about class, religion, gender, sexuality, and politics in late Victorian Britain. And those five topics will be at the heart of my talk tonight. So any account of the Bolton Whitmanites has to begin with the man they playfully addressed as their master, J.W. Wallace. Uh, Wallace was born in 1853 in the Howe, a working class district of soot the grind attached houses. An only child, he never married, lived with his parents on Eagle Street for much of his adult life. He left school at 14 to work as a draftsman in an architect's office and stayed with the same firm until retirement 45 years later. Superficially, his life seems emblematic of the constraints of lower middle class culture. Yet it's worth remembering how many Victorian political and cultural radicals arose from the same milieu. The lower middle class emphasis on self-improvement encouraged intellectual independence, and the prevalence of evangelical dissent spurred social conscience. I want to examine for a moment the religious milieu of the 1870s and 80s when Wallace came to adulthood. The conventional understanding of the era is that once the spread of Darwinism undermined religious orthodoxy, the way was cleared for modern secular culture. But I think the secularization thesis has been increasingly challenged by numerous religious studies scholars. Uh, these scholars, I'm thinking particularly the work of Lee Schmidt and Catherine Albanese, argue that in both Great Britain and the US during this period, evangelical culture provided the seedbed for flowering 
of, um, of uh, post-Darwinian, post-Protestant new religious movements, including New Thought, Theosophy, Spiritualism, Ethical Culture. Across Britain, small groups of cultural and religious radicals attached themselves to contemporary prophet artists, Tolstoyans in Perley, Ruskinians in Liverpool frequently drawing upon Christian religious language and forms, but rejecting credal orthodoxy. These new religious movements appealed to young people adrift in a rapidly modernizing Britain. The nascent secular consumer culture seemed to them soulless, yet traditional churches seemed burdened by cumbersome institutional hierarchies, outmoded liturgies, centuries-old dogma that was at odds with contemporary science. In contrast, the new metaphysical religions welcomed spiritual seekers. They provided a community for lower middle class individuals who were without the forms of support available to those both above and below them on the social scale. The economic security enjoyed by the middle and upper classes, the trade unions, social organizations, neighborhood pubs uh, that served the working class. When J.W. Wallace came across Whitman's poetry in the late 1880s, most likely in William Michael Rossetti's famous uh, edition. Um, he was primed by several years of spiritual seeking and by his devotional reading of three great 19th century secular prophets, Emerson, Carlyle, Ruskin. Um, starting in 1886, he introduced Whitman into the weekly discussions he held each Monday evening in his Eagle Street home with a few close friends. Those became the annual Whitman birthday celebrations. And this is a later Whitman birthday celebration, some 15 years after the first. Um, that's uh, Dr. Johnston, John Johnston on the far right. That's J.W. Wallace with his arm around uh, Johnston. Uh, this is a Whitman shrine around which they gathered for these birthday celebrations. There, these are all inscribed copies of these grass, inscribed to them by the poet and reverently brought from Camden to Bolton. Um, on the uh, uh, table are two famous photographs of Whitman, one of uh, Whitman in old age, the one they call the laughing philosopher. And this one is the one of Whitman in 1854, just before he published the first edition of Reason Grass, that was called the Christ photograph. Um, uh, Whitman looking very much like a, like a grizzled Jesus. Um, anyway, um, Andrew Elfenbach, has argued that much of the appeal of Whitman's poetry to these British readers derived from its form, what Elfenbein calls its middle style, a style, quote, poetical enough to signal elevated utterance, but prose-like enough to detach itself from the pressured artifice of Victorian poets like D.G. Rossetti or Tennyson. That is, a taste for Whitman allowed these readers to declare their sympathy with Whitman's democratic ideals yet at the same time to distinguish themselves from those lower on the social scale. Elfenbein argues that Lisa Grass was poised between, quote, the elitism of established Victorian writers and the vulgarity of traditional labor lyrics. Elfenbein's analysis, centered on the relationship between poetic form and social class, seems to me useful but inadequate. I'd like to turn from a consideration of class to further explore the Bolton Whitmanite's religious response to Lisa Grass. In a number of publications, I've explored the religious dimensions of Whitman's poetry. 
And I've noted Whitman's 1872 claim that, quote, when I commenced years ago elaborating the plan of my poems, one deep purpose underlay the others and has underlain it and its execution ever since. And that has been the religious purpose. Now, it's remarkable how many critics have tried to explain away that statement. <laughs> At other times, he emphasized other purposes, he became more religious as he got older. But it seems to me that it's maybe it's worth taking Whitman at his word. What was his religious purpose? Now, that question could take the rest of my and Linda's time. And Linda and I could have a fascinating one-hour conversation <laughs> about Whitman's religious purpose. But let me try to boil it down in just uh, two minutes into four qualities. Equality, imminence, self-reliance, and comradeship. So first, equality. I celebrate myself and what I assume you shall assume. For every atom belonging to you, as good as belonging to me, as good belongs to you. So begins the first poem in the first edition of Lisa Grass, the masterwork that would come to be known as Song of Myself. The statement is political. It asserts a democratic equality between poet and reader. But it is also religious. I and you are not simply equal, but identical in a way that makes sense only in metaphysical terms. Divine am I inside and out, Whitman writes. But since you and I are interchangeable, you are as divine as I. Okay, number two, eminence. So Whitman takes from Emerson and the Transcendentalists their liberal eminentist theology. That is, throughout the universe of leaves of grass, the divine is everywhere eminent. A single mouse, Whitman writes, is divine enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. Sextillion is 10 followed by 16 zeros. Um, Whitman's notorious catalogs, often seen as tedious assemblages of objects, can be understood as inventories of the sacred. The pismire, an ant, the pismire is equally perfect, and a grain of sand, and the egg of the wren, he writes. These three objects could be multiplied indefinitely. Whitman offers lists of objects as incantations, designed to help us see the world afresh and recognize the spirituality of the material. Number three, self-reliance. Like Emerson, Whitman extends self-reliance to the religious sphere. Nothing, not God, is greater to one than oneself is. He tells us in Song of Myself. And in an early notebook entry, he describes how he wants to sweep away institutional religion in favor of what he calls, quote, the real religion of the fully realized self. And last, number four, comradeship. Whitman realized that the individuality was not sufficient. His religious vision also includes empathy, compassion, love. Not that half only individualism, which isolates, he writes in Democratic Vistas. There is another half, which is adhesiveness or love, that fuses, ties, and aggregates, making the races comrades and fraternizing all. So in brief, it's these four elements, equality, eminence of the divine, spiritual self-reliance, and universal comradeship, that distinguish Whitman's religious vision and that led so many late 19th century spiritual seekers to regard Lee Zagrass as a new Bible 
and Whitman as a divinely inspired poet prophet. When I was writing my book, Worshiping Wall, I told people I'm writing a book about Whitman disciples, and they would say, oh, you mean disciple like Allen Ginsberg? And I said, no, I mean a disciple like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> so come in, please. Uh, there are chairs for you right here, but I'm, I'm very sorry you missed all the best part. <laughs> um, all right. Um, so Whitman as poet, divinely inspired poet, prophet, including the men of the Eagle Street College. Um, in 1890, when attendance at a weekly meeting flagged for a period, Walsh wrote a sort of apostolic epistle to the Boltonians, inspiring them to rise to their role as Whitman's chosen disciples in England. Quote, quote, since Christ died, no greater spiritual force has appeared on earth than is incarnated in Walt Whitman. I ask you, are we not, as members of a society dear to him, as friends of his, remember those hundred letters that he's sending to Bolton, uh, as objects of his paternal interest and affection, bound by all the answering and responding affection and reverence of which we're capable to maintain and develop our comradeship and the spirit of our college and the spirit of comradeship which binds it together? To this end, we must all work and definitely consecrate. Ourselves. Wallace notes, churches and chapels have lost their attractions. Let us make our little college a church, a church where without formulas or ritual, we may nevertheless meet in his name, capital H. Wallace's version of Whitmanism appealed to the college members because like many new religious movements, it was poised between radical rejection of existing religious institutions and a comforting embrace of familiar forms. Lisa Grass was a gospel, the college was a church, and Whitman himself was parallel to Christ. So the Bolton Whitmanites were both attracted to both the individualism of Whitman's religious message and his fervent gospel of comradeship. Their spiritual earnestness and affection for one another were inextricably intertwined, which leads me to the third of my topics, gender. The Bolton Whitmanites challenge popular stereotypes of Victorian masculinity, the idea that men of the middle class were largely reserved and inexpressive. The men of the college were remarkably free in declaring their love for one another. Take, for example, this humorous song that Johnston composed for Wallace on the latter's birthday. David, I want to beg your forgiveness. You're going to hear Scottish dialect read in a New Jersey accent. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Brave chiefs who do hold Wallace dear, good friends than whom none love him more. Welcome ye and guilty swear on this suspicious day. Now's the day and now's the hour. We honor be the man whose power unites us all the world over and chains a love for I. The Scots dialect does not disguise the song's remarkably open declaration of love. Wallace has bound them in chains of love, they sing, and Wallace responded with equal fervor. I shall think of you constantly, he wrote to Johnston, the evening before the doctor's departure on a voyage to America. Johnston was journeying to see Walt Whitman, who made possible the emotional expressiveness of the Eagle Street College. Whitman offers them a model of male affection, and their allegiance to Whitman provides the Bolton Group a haven within Victorian culture, a cultural safe space in which they can freely express their love to one another. As Johnston writes, in another of his songs, 
Sorry, David. Um, this little band of brothers true defiance of assault, for is not yet the member of it, uh, sealed of the tribe of Walt. To be sealed of the tribe of Walt was to be a member of a subculture that gave the same value to intense male friendship that the larger culture gave to heterosexual courtship and marriage. The men of the college seized on the Whitman-esque ideal of comradeship and waved the word like a banner. Whitman gave them a large and sacred purpose. They were not simply a group of friends meeting weekly for cocoa and discussion. They were the vanguard of an army dedicated to establishing, quote, the institution of the dear love of comrades. Wallace appropriated these words from Whitman in describing how he and Johnston gave another college member a copy of Leaves of Grass inscribed with a verse from Calamus, with the love of comrades, with the lifelong love of comrades. Calamus, of course, is the cluster of poems in Leaves of Grass that celebrates uh, men's love for one another. By providing the men of the Eagle Street College a ready-made language to express their love, as well as suitable tokens of affection, Wallace ordered uh, a, a copies of a pocket leaves of grass by the uh, uh, caseload from uh, Camden. Um, Whitman makes possible the creation of what I call a male world of love and ritual. I take that phrase from a classic essay by Carol Smith Rosenberg on 19th century women's intimate friendships. More recent historians have noted that at least some Victorian men shaped similar worlds for themselves. Whitman provided the men of the Eagle Street College with the language and rituals that enabled them to draw together with unusual closeness. One of them wrote a song to the tune of Old Lang Syne that reveals the uses they made of Whitman. Oh, manly love of comrades, cease not until life ends. In Whitman's name, we plight our troth and swear will I be friends. Whitman's name enables the men to pledge their love for one another in vows that mimic a wedding ceremony but that are nevertheless manly. So what about, you may, be able, may well be asking at this point, what about the connection between Whitman's comradeship and the fourth of my topics, sexuality? Among the most important critical projects in American literary studies during the last 40 years, I would argue, has been exploring that connection. Critics have established Whitman as a gay ancestor. They've explored the textual construction of homosexual identity in Lisa Grass, and they've examined the reception among leaves of grass among 19th century same-sex lovers. And here I'm thinking particularly of the work of Jonathan Ned Katz and Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick. Um, in her brilliant coda to Among Men, English Literature and Male Homosocial Desire, titled English Readers of Whitman, Sedgwick examined the ways in which John Addington Simmons and Edward Carpenter, two pioneering English writers on same-sex love, used Whitman in their efforts to theorize what Simmons called sexual inversion and Carpenter homogenic love. They, uh, homosexual combined a Greek and a Latin root, which was like fingernails on chalkboard for these <laughs> classically trained uh, men. So Wallace and Johnson knew Carpenter personally, and they corresponded with Simmons, who lived in Switzerland. Their relationship with the latter was tested. In the early 1890s, when they began corresponding, Simmons was at work on three books, um, which at the time scarcely circulated. Now, uh, they're the foundation of his reputation. One was Sexual Inversion, the first major English language study of homosexuals, on which he correspond, uh, collaborated with Havelock Ellis, the physician and writer. Um, the second book was A Problem in Modern Ethics, subtitled, an inquiry into the phenomenon of sexual inversion. 
which Simmons privately printed in an edition of only 50 copies. And the last was Walt Whitman, a study, the first work to offer what we now would call a queer reading of Calamus. Now, Simmons was one of the first Englishmen familiar with the work of the continental sexologists. Fluent in German, he came upon Richard von Kraft Ebbing's Psychopathia Sexualis soon after its publication in 1886. Uh, it, in turn, sent him to earlier work by Karl Heinrich Ulrichs, and here I would just send you to the work of Heike Bauer, um, English Literary Sexology, which is the, the definitive work on how Simmons and Carpenter and other Englishmen of the period made use of this continental sexologist to construct a homosexual identity. Um, in his own work, Simmons, inspired by the definitional and taxonomic achievements of the sexologists, offered a literary historical survey of sexual uh, inversion um, uh, and argu argues for the decriminalization of same-sex relations. The Bolton Whitmanites weren't aware of those publications. Wallace, it seems to me clear from the evidence, saw Whitman as comrade love as a powerful, completely unproblematic sentiment that had nothing to do with sex. So it's tempting from our post-Fordian perspective that he was simply repressing the homoerotic dimensions, both Whitman's poetry and his own intense friendships. Yet I think that would be as misleading as to insist that homoerotic elements were absent. Carol Smith Rosenberg remains useful here, I think. She argues that applying modern views of love and sexuality to 19th century women's friendships, insisting that people must be either straight or gay, the relations are either physical or not, distorts the more flexible notions prevalent before what Jonathan Ned Katz has called the invention of heterosexuality in the 20th century. She argues that for the historical, she argues for the historical and imaginative utility of paradox. 19th century same-sex relationships could be both sensual and platonic. At the same time that Simmons is writing his groundbreaking articles, he's corresponding with Wallace and Johnston, using his letters to work out his theories on Whitman and sexual inversion. The Boltonians were having none of it. Johnston wrote in his diary about one letter uh, from Simmons, this to me is one of the most damnably atrocious suggestions conceivable. To speak of sexual inversion as being implied seems to me nothing short of a gross insult to Walt himself. Surely Simmons cannot be serious in that odious suggestion! Exclamation mark. <laughs> Wallace reacts to the same letter more in sorrow than in anger. He tells his friends that he replies to Simmons with a 16-page letter. Quote, it seems curious to me that it should fall to my lot to explain to him what the drift of Calamus is and to show how ungrounded are the fears which he entertains of one direction of its possible end. Because Simmons says, I'm afraid it might lead to silly sexual emotions. Um, is it not a striking illustration of the sophistication and stunting effect of what is called literary culture? that Simmons should be so much at sea in dealing with the fresh, natural emotions expressed in Calamus and well enough known to simple and unlettered people. So, Johnson and Wallace recoil from Simmons' suggestion of a link between Calamus and sexual aversion. Yet, as H.G. Cox points out, and I, he has done, uh, written a wonderful article about the Fulton Disciples, their disapproval of Simmons' homoerotic interpretations serves to enable the romantic friendships among the men of the Eagle Street College, acting as, in Cox's words, 
to remove the taint of corruption from any association with Whitman and licensing their own comradeship by displacing any possible homoerotic desire into a distant, distant and abject realm of moral corruption and disease. That is, by relegating Simmons to the realm of overly sophisticated continental literary culture, Johnson and Wallace promote their own loving yet manly version, British version, of Whitman's comradeship. So this version of loving comradeship leads to my fifth and final topic, politics. In the college's early days, the Whitman's comradeship had been an end in itself. But with Whitman's death in 1892, Wallace becomes convinced that they have a greater mission. Walt Whitman's work has descended to us, he says in an address to the college. He has bequeathed to us tremendous and important duties that we have not yet begun to realize. At one time, at the time Wallace is unclear about the nature of those duties, he soon finds the answer in Britain's growing socialist movements. So the leap from a spiritually infused reading of Leaves of Grasses in the Gospel to a reading of it as a prefigurative socialist classic might seem difficult. But only if our conception of 19th century socialism is limited to the Fabianism of London intellectuals, they're in the John Maynard Keynes Library, <laughs> right? Or um, to the Marxism of H.M. Heinemann in the Social Democratic Federation. Um, living in the Industrial North, Wallace is in the epicenter of what political historian Henry Pelling famously called ethical socialism, but which I think was more accurately labeled by Edward Carpenter as the larger socialism. By that, Carpenter means an ideologically hybrid socialism that draws not just on Marx, but on Carlyle, Ruskin, and Whitman. Carpenter had a transformative millennial vision of the socialist future as a spiritual democracy anchored in Whitman's comradeship, not in a dictatorship of the proletariat. Carpenter's larger socialism aimed at nothing less than the complete transformation of society. And if it embraced, among many other causes, vegetarianism, feminism, anti-colonialism, spirituality, environmentalism, and sandal wearing, which Carpenter <laughs> advocated as a means of liberating the feet from what he called leathern coffins. <laughs> the Marxist Heinemann was appalled by the largest, largest socialism. He said that he did not want the socialist movement to become, quote, a depository of old cranks, humanitarians, vegetarians, anti-vivisectionists, arty-crafties, and all the rest of them. Carpenter and Wallace were unfazed. The two of them were early supporters of the Independent Labor Party, and Wallace was the founding president of his local chapter at the Lancashire ILP, to which he brought his utopian vision of Whitman's democracy. And there's some Americans in the audience. The ILP eventually led to the Labor Party, the Labor Party. Um, so, um, Wallace proudly writes to an American friend, I've been dosing the Lancashire Socialists with Walt, he proudly said. <laughs> when the ILP held its second national conference in Manchester in 1894, he dosed the entire assembly with Walt. Nothing reveals, I think, British socialist openness to the larger socialism more clearly than Wallace's address at this major national political gathering. So he begins by stressing personal over political transformation, quoting Whitman, produce great persons, and the rest follows. 
Wallace insists that the foundation of socialism rests on Whitmanesque pride in oneself, but pride, he cautions, in the deeper self, which is superior to meanness or vanity, which is essentially the same in all, the personal soul, which tallies all nature and all humanity, and is of like nature with God himself. He concludes this address, or rather sermon, by saying, this is the ideal to which I offer to you, which I have learned from my master, Walt Whitman. Then reads Whitman's Pioneers, O Pioneers, a poem that with its stirring evocation of a vaguely envisioned future circulated widely among English socialists. And here I would uh, turn you to Kirsten Harris's uh, recent book on Walt Whitman's British Socialism, which devotes an entire chapter to that poem, Pioneers, O Pioneers. Despite Whitman's own well-documented indifference to the socialist movements of his era, Wallace manages to turn the American poet into a patron saint of British socialism. Literally so, he wrote a biography of Whitman for the monthly calendar of socialist saints feature in the Young Socialist magazine. He was aided in this endeavor by the very influential John Trevor of Manchester, who founded the Labor Church in 1891. The church's first principle, as formulated by Trevor, is that the labor movement is a religious movement. He emphasized that social and economic justice depended on personal transformation, an idea appealing to many congregates who had also grown up in evangelical households. Thanks to Trevor's energy and the widespread cultural receptiveness for the union of religion and socialism, labor churches quickly multiplied, especially in the north of England, by 1895, there were 50 of them. Um, Services typically would include socialist hymns, such as Edward Carpenter's English uh, England Arise, sermons by local or visiting speakers, Carpenter, Keir Hardy, Bruce and Catherine Glazier, um, and readings of poems, frequently by Whitman. Trevor proclaimed Whitman to be, quote, nearer to God than any man on earth. Wallace was active in the Lancashire Labor Church. And during the early 1890s, he became increasingly convinced that his personal connection to Whitman, um, he had met the poet who had made an 1891 pilgrimage to Canada. Um, and his friendships with Carpenter and Trevor and the IFP leadership gave him and the college a unique role in the nation's future. More and more I see, he wrote to an American friend, how great a work there is to do. And for me especially, in Walt's cause in England, I'm coming more and more into personal contact with the leaders of English democracy, such as Keir Hardy, Ramsey MacDonald. I long to supply what I perceive them to hungrily demand, uh, the comradeship of a disciple of Waltz, who with loving hands might lead them and the multitudes they influence to the savior, that is Whitman, who alone can supply their immense spiritual needs. He was living in heavy times during the early 1890s. The ILP was surging in membership. Labor churches were spreading across England. And he was receiving almost daily impassioned letters from American Whitmanites who shared this millennial vision. By the end of the decade, however, Wallace's millennialism had been tempered. Members of the Eagle Street College began drifting away. John Trevor resigned his leadership in the Labor Church, which immediately uh, dwindled away, and the ILP became increasingly concentrated on electoral success rather than on its earlier strategy of making socialists, that is, on individual conversion. Wallace never lost his faith in Whitman, 
as the prophet of a democratic future. And the Eagle Street College continued to hold its Whitman birthday celebrations into the new century. The history of Whitman's reception in 20th century Britain, however, focuses rightly not on amateur enthusiasts, but on academic professionals. And so I conclude. But I can't help mentioning that on May 31st this year, I will be in Bolton celebrating Whitman's 200th birthday. Though the annual celebrations of Whitman's birthday by a second generation of Eagle Street College members ceased in the 1930s, in the 1980s, they were revived by members of the Bolton Socialist Club. The Bolton Socialist Club is only one of two remaining independent socialist clubs in the UK. Um, and the socialist club members were, who were animated by regional pride, an interest in local history and tradition, and an affection for Whitman's poetry. So on May 31st, along with several dozen members of the socialist club and their friends, and perhaps people in this room, um, I expect to tour the extensive Whitman holdings of the Bolton Public Library, which is the largest outside the US, and which includes, among its mementos, Whitman mementos, uh, his stuffed canary. Uh, after he died, he had his stuff and he sent it to Bolton. Uh, you can buy a postcard. Um, and then, then uh, the group uh, will ramble through the Lancashire countryside, read from leaves of grass in the open air, as Whitman insisted we do, and drink wine from a 19th century loving cup and a toast to Walt Whitman's visionary poetry and a long tradition of Anglo-American friendship. The song of the Bolton Whitmanites may have changed to a different tune, but it is worth noting it continues to be sung. Thank you. <laughs>